informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming in today's show. We're going to be talking about some new uses for soybean oil here in just a moment with Dave Walton of the American Soybean Association. And in segment two, we're going to take a look at some water ways funding. Word of the Water Resources Development Act was passed by Congress. We're going to talk with Dustin Davidson, the Director of Government Relations for the Waterways Council, about where those dollars are going to go and how can it help improve ag transportation looking out to the future. In segment three, we're going to get a read on the markets with our friend Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX. Yesterday was a busy day in the trade, particularly in the livestock. We'll get Arlen's thoughts on where it could go heading into the Christmas holiday. And we're going to close the show with Eric Carlson. He's a researcher at uh, the State University of New York, and he has been working on bringing back the American chestnut tree. We're going to talk with Eric at the end of the show. Before we dive into all of that, however, we did have a piece of news come out late yesterday. Big piece of news we've discussed on the show quite a bit. The confirmation of Alexis Taylor as the USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs. She was nominated to that post several months ago. That position had been on hold, and late on Wednesday, the Senate was able to get that vote through, and they do have her confirmed as a voice for American trade out in the global world. Numerous ag groups supported the confirmation of Alexis Taylor, including the American Soybean Association. Joining us now is Dave Walton. He's an Iowa soybean grower. He serves on the ASA Executive Committee. And Dave, good news to see Alexis moving into that role, isn't it? Yeah, uh, we've been waiting two years for that to happen, but uh, it's great news to see her confirmed and and, uh, get her to work because we certainly need it. We certainly do. Driving demand for ag products around the world is a team effort. So we'll talk about uh, Alexis going forward and see what her roles are as she moves into that position. But we've also got some very exciting news about ways soybean oil might find itself more in your light. Dave, let's talk a little bit about this bioproduct pilot program that was funded in the omnibus bill. What all is the USDA looking to do with this program? Well, it's really looking away to add sustainable products made from uh, bio-based materials, and in our case, uh, generally soybean oil, uh, and and they're looking to um, make the infrastructure of the U.S. more sustainable uh, while using our own domestic product to do so. Well, that is certainly something that uh, it sounds like American soybean growers are going to support. Dave, we've got $9.5 million going to several different projects related to bioproduct manufacturing. The, the one that's most interesting, I think, from the ASA's perspective is the idea of soybean oil to rubber for pavements and shingles. Could you talk a little bit about what this technology is? Sure. Uh, that technology converts soybean oil to a polymer uh, that can be used as a binder for asphalt, and that's probably the number one use for that that product. Uh, it's an interesting product. It started out as a uh, uh, at Iowa State as just a a um, a, a lab um, project, and through funding from Iowa, the Iowa Soybean Association, and then as it grew, United Soybean Board and some other state funding, uh, we've we've taken that from a uh, experimental phase to a pilot phase and now it's uh, ready for commercial introduction ready for commercial introduction dave i think back to the farm progress show earlier this year and there were a number of headlines about the soy-based asphalt that was used under the varied industries tent is that the same type of product that is going to see additional funding that is the very same product that will see that funding uh 
the uh, uh, we thought that would be a great place to highlight it and actually show farmers what their checkoff dollars are doing. Um, that that asphalt installation is exactly the same product that will go on the the roads around the country. So um, what you're walking on is the same thing that was is funded through those checkoff dollars and will be uh, will be put to use around the country. Well, so Dave, that's my only interaction with it. I had the chance to walk on it as I was in the varied industries tent, was blown away at just how incredibly similar the final product was to asphalt. And that's got to have the industry excited about where this can go longer term. Yeah, it really does. You know, you look at the, the millions of miles of asphalt around the country and, and the demand for soybean, soybean or that will uh, that's just a new use for us. And as, as our industry grows, we need to find those those new uses domestically. Uh, you know, the international market is great, but if we can add value and, and add sustainability to our infrastructure here at home, uh, that's a win-win-win for us all the way around. Absolutely. I mean, I think especially in this case, you've got the environmental camp can be satisfied that we've got a bio-based product pushing out some crude-based, uh, you know, components there in asphalt. We're driving more markets for soybeans. And yeah, all of that works out to American farmers' advantage. On the checkoff side, Dave, of course, ASA looking to always promote new products, new uses for soybeans. This is a very exciting one. Are there any others you're watching here as we get into 2023? Yeah, really. There's there's two other ones. If um, if you want to stay on the paving side, there's a product called Pore Shield uh, that is a concrete sealer, and that was also uh, developed through collaborative efforts of USDA, NIFA, uh, USB, and ASA, uh, and the the state associations. And what that is, it's a it's a concrete sealant that doesn't allow moisture and therefore salt to creep into the uh, the road surfaces, uh, specifically bridges and will extend the life of the pavement. So uh, not only are we using a sustainable product, but we're also um, we're hardening the infrastructure so that the paving and bridge decks won't have to be replaced as often as before. Uh, that particular product uses about 400 bushels of soybean per mile of use. So that's, that's a lot of demand there for us. Um, maybe one other one to, t- to touch on is uh, Virginia Polytech has a biodegradable polyplastic uh, made from soybean oil as well that can be used for uh, both rigid and and flexible uh, containers for food and other uses. So, I mean, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming through this bioproduct program uh, and and it's all new use for soybeans, all funded through checkoff dollars and then supported through policy efforts of ASA and, and the respective state organizations. It, it is incredible to see this roll out. Dave, from a commercialization perspective, you mentioned one of these products is going to take 400 bushels per mile of soybeans to get this done. When do we see commercialization moving more towards the mainstream? Well, that's um, that's happening right now. Uh, both of those, the asphalt product and the Porsche product, are both commercial products. It's a, it's a matter now of convincing the, the state DOTs and the local uh, engineers that this is a product that they need to use. Uh, there's been extensive testing, I know, especially on asphalt, uh, extended life use, or life cycle testing. And we're seeing in, in the case of asphalt, where there's longer wear, uh, better surface uh, stability than uh, petroleum-based asphalt. So we're taking that data to the, to the federal and state engineers and the DOT, pro, or the DOT departments and, and really hammering that home how good this product is. 
That's what it's all about. Once you develop these incredible products and technologies, you've got to get them into the hands of the folks who can use them. And of course, ASA and the checkoff will continue to be doing that for the American soybean grower. Folks, today we have been speaking with Dave Walton. He serves on the executive committee for the American Soybean Association, works as a soybean farmer in Iowa. And Dave, thank you so much for joining us today with this update. Thank you, Mike. It was glad. I'm glad to be here. Well, stay warm. Of course, we've got some cold weather coming through the area here, not just Iowa. It's coming across the entire midsection of the country. We'll be keeping an eye on that and bringing you up to speed as it gets worse. But we're also going to talk water with Dustin Davidson, the Director of Government Relations with the Waterways Council, here when AOA returns. Stay with us. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. This is Ernie Johnson, Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD, and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. 
keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for joining us today for AOA. You know, back at the very beginning of December, we took the temperature of various pieces of legislation in Washington as we were looking ahead to just what Congress could conceivably get done before the end of the year. We outlined a few things that they had to get done. Of course, we've got the omnibus bill, the, the spending program for the government going forward. We've got the defense authorization. And then I think specifically of importance for folks here in the ag industry that rely on those inland waterways to get our products to and from the ports and from the farm. We saw the passage of WERDA, the Water Resources Development Act, must, like the Farm Bill, be passed every two years, in this case for WERDA, and uh, they got it done. Joining us now for an update on what all is included in WERDA and how it could impact transportation on the waterways long term is Dustin Davidson. He serves as the Director of Government Relations for the Waterways Council. And Dustin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, let's talk about this 2022 WERDA piece of legislation. Dustin, we have seen the waterways get all sorts of headlines uh, throughout this year as the supply chain challenges and the low water level compromised uh, movement on the Mississippi. Did that put a little extra pep in legislators' steps to get this thing done? Uh, yeah, it definitely did a little bit, but I, th- I want to go back to what you said in the beginning. You know, this is a biennial piece of legislation done every two years. And for a while, Congress wasn't on that track. You know, we'd have one every four, maybe every six, go through a long span without any authorizations or any new projects. And so Congress got back into the the process of doing this every two years. And so while everything that was going on this year certainly, you know, added to that fire, um, Congress has been really good at staying on schedule and making sure that this is something that they keep on track every two years, along with your defense spending and regular appropriations and things like that. And Dustin, let's talk a little bit about the WERDA process. In in ag, we're used to the farm bill. We're used to how that can shake up the industry and everybody kind of focuses on it. WERDA, is that similar in the waterways industry? Is this something that the industry watches year in and year out? Oh, definitely. Um, And like you said, it's just like the farm bill, um, very similar to appropriations or a highway bill in that. It's It's a bill about projects. And when you're dealing with projects, you know, there's a lot of steps involved the environmental processes, you have to engage with stakeholders, you have to engage with even other members who are on the other side of the waterway, right? Everybody has a different interest. And so this process, you know, it starts with the year before the bill is even passed, members are coming forward with their priorities. The Army Corps is coming forward saying, hey, here are the projects that we would like to see move forward. Um, Then you also have conversations with the White House on funding, you know, what's available for certain projects and what can be moving forward. Because I think, you know, just like anybody else's home finances, you never want to put something on the books that you have trouble paying for later down the line. And so there's there's a bit of a balancing act that's required in terms of authorizations for spending. Uh, but yeah, the process is, is, is actually very fun to be a part of, um, working with members of Congress to get their priorities done is always uh, something that we at WCI take uh, very seriously because it's the best way to partner with these members and, you know, folks back home like yourself who are relying on them for, you know, either uh, sufficient transportation, water quality, whatever it may be in that word of bill. Well, so let's talk through those projects that did receive authorization here in this word of bill. It was about a $38 billion bill, as I understand it. Dustin, where's that money going to go? Um, so there's about 33 chiefs of, uh, reports, which are projects that are authorized, um, and that goes across the spectrum from the Mississippi River tributaries to 
Um, it can go to some environmental projects, navigation. Um, there are many, uh, many things. For us, we didn't really have anything in there specifically that was a highlight of a project, but what we did have that was included is our cost share um, adjustment from 65-35. That was supposed to expire in 2031. Um, we were lucky enough to work with both committees to get that expiration date uh, wiped out. So it's 65-35 um, moving forward forever. And that allows us, when we do have those projects ready to be coming up, we have a set cost share uh, with the Inland Water Trust Fund that makes sure that we have funding available. And Dustin, I'm really glad you brought up that Inland Waterway Trust Fund. Of course, this funding mechanism that you alluded to there, that 65-35, that 65% of funding for new projects comes from the general fund, only 35% from the Inland Waterways Trust Fund. And as you mentioned, that's a, a tremendous advantage for folks who use the Inland Waterways. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how those two groups function? What's the interaction between the IWTF and the general fund when it comes to these big projects? Yeah, so operators and shippers on the Inland water tra Waterway Transportation System, and the best way to think about it is Mississippi River, Ohio River, um, parts of the Missouri River, um, Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, and um, the McClellan-Kurt system. Those members pay $0.29 cents per gallon of diesel fuel used on the system to transport cargos. Um, that $0.29 cent tax um, that we pay it goes into the Inland Waterway Trust Fund, which serves as a pot of money to, to be the match, the non-federal match for any Inland Waterway tr uh, Trust Fund or in, in, Inland Waterway Modernization Projects that we have going on. So you said it, you know, 65-35, um, you know, looking at it right now in the appropriations bill, there's about $39 million for Chickamauga Lock. That means about $13 million is coming out of that trust fund. The rest is going to be paid for by the federal government. And that's a huge, huge step for us because it allows us to, to spread that trust fund out a little bit more and get more projects going in different parts of the country as opposed to, you know, focusing in one area. Well, and that makes so much sense. And Dustin, the, the reason I wanted to bring up the Inland Water Trust Fund is because the the challenge looking forward, of course, we've got infrastructure costs continuing to climb with inflation, and I would imagine those barges are getting more efficient in the waterways, which would make the, the tax paid less. Is that the crunch that that trust fund was feeling? Um, in a way, yes. You know, we also saw just a decrease in movement of cargoes uh, following COVID, and, you know, we also had this low water situation this year. And so there are a ton of things that can really, um, I would say, you know, factor into what the final balance of that trust fund is. But overall, this industry has maintained navigation on the Mississippi River, even in low water years. Um, we've had some pretty, pretty remarkable record years in terms of transportation. And the number going into the trust fund is only going up. So, you know, we're, we're feeling pretty confident that while that could happen, um, we don't see that happening anytime in the near future. And as we modernize more, more of these locks, we're able to move more toes down the river. And as you do that, you're moving more cargoes, able to do more. And, you know, we see that as an opportunity to grow the trust fund. Uh, and, and, and when I say grow the trust fund, I don't mean we want to keep a large balance in there, but I mean grow it in terms of having more money available to spend on projects. Absolutely. Trust funds are only good if they can do the things you want to do with them. And you got to have funds in order to right. do that. Speaking of funding, Dustin, one of the things that I'd like to 
think we ought to make mention of is that WERDA authorizes funding, but it doesn't appropriate funding. As I understand, can you talk about how that's different and what you expect on the appropriations front? Yeah. So like you said, WERDA authorizes. That basically just goes and says to the Army Corps, hey, you are allowed to spend money on this project. Once you get your authorization, you then have to turn to the appropriations committee to then ask them how much. Um, in that process, the Corps does work with the appropriations committee and the administration to come up with what they say their capability is or what they're capable of completing in a fiscal year. And then from there, we work with the Appropriations Committee and members of Congress to try to get as close to that number as we possibly can. So if a, if the Corps comes out and says they have $100 million in capability for the Navigation Ecosystem Sustainability Program, then that's the number we're going out for, and that's how we match that authorization with appropriations. We want to try to make sure the appropriation keeps up with that cost that the project was initially authorized at. Okay, now that makes sense. And of course, going through a separate pro, pro, uh, a separate way to get that funds, of course, adds time. When do you expect appropriations typically in a congressional year? <laughs> well, um, again, if this was your own pocketbook, uh, I think you would expect them to be at the beginning of every fiscal year, October 1st. Um, we... We haven't necessarily seen that in recent years. Um, appropriations has lagged on all the way till the end of the year, which creates difficulty for us in terms of contract delivery. Um, for us, ideally, we would love to see it October 1st. We were happy to see the appropriations bill move through um, the final omnibus this week, which provides funding for the Army Corps. I think another record $8.66 billion in total. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we're always happy to see the final bill, but if, if we could get it October 1st or September 30th, that would make life a lot easier. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, for the WCI members, as they look out to 2023, Dustin, are they excited for the potential in the waterways? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a very exciting year. Um, you know, mainly because you see a lot of members in Congress who has, has spent a lot of time there. Um, they've been champions for us. They've carried our water, no pun intended, for, for decades. And now a lot of them are either retiring or we're not fortunate enough to continue serving in that role. And so we have a new crop of members that we have to educate. And that's always fun about this job. And, um, you know, we're really looking forward to getting out there and talking with these new districts and making sure that they hear our message. Understanding how important that inland waterway is to all of us is a vital job. Dustin Davidson, Director, Government Relations at the Waterways Council. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Y'all have a good one. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're going to talk with Arlen Suderman from Stonex. Stay here for more AOA. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. 
This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we look at the market trade early on, soybeans and products under moderate pressure to the downside. Corn trading right around unchanged, a couple of cents either side of it, with the wheat market up a little bit, and mixed activity in cattle and hogs. The latest USDA weekly export sales report showed weaker sales for corded soybeans in the weekend of December 15th. Corn came in at the low end of pre-report estimates, and soybeans were below the lowest trade estimates, so that's definitely not helping in Thursday's trade activity. China was the main player in the soybean trade. Mexico was the leading corn buyer. Soybean meal sales did hit a four-week high on the weekly export sales report as well. Pork net sales were very strong, 58,700 metric tons with Mexico, Japan, and Canada, the top pork buyers on the week. Beef sales, though, were dismal, just 4,500 metric tons on the week with Japan as the top buyer. Now, we look at these markets. We got this thin holiday type of trading really starting to settle in. It appears a lot of traders are already going home and calling it quits here for the Christmas holiday. So that could lead us to a little volatility today and tomorrow, something to watch. But overall, these markets are going to be very thin and low volume. Crude oil has been bumping up against the $80 a barrel level again as we trade right around 78 dollars uh, 79 dollars here we've been kind of up and down uh up about 1% and now down just slightly. Stock market under some pressure early on Thursday as well, down about 400, some almost 500 points in the Dow Jones and NASDAQ down about 300 points. We look at cash cattle country, not a lot of activity here this week. It appears that a lot of folks are going to be prioritizing animal health over trading, which of course is very important. And we'll see if we do get any sort of trade activity in cash country here today before we head to the holiday. We do have that cattle on feed report and quarterly Hongs and Pigs report coming up on Friday. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark porous and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We're going to turn our focus over to the ag commodity markets. Joining us now, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX, Mr. Arlen Suderman. And Arlen, thanks for taking the time to join us today. It's good to be with you, Mike. Uh, I hope you're being able to stay inside and stay warm. This is uh, uh, certainly a cold event we're seeing here across America today. 
It is, and it's going to get worse. Stay bundled up. And Arlen, with this weather in the news, I want to talk about yesterday's action in the livestock market. Wednesday was a wild day. Was it storm-related, or is it positioning ahead of Friday's big market news day? I think a lot of it was storm-related with the cold weather coming in. Uh, I mean, we know how hard it is on us to be out in the cold. Think about the livestock that are out in the cold. They're going to focus all their energy on just uh, trying to stay warm, and that means that they're not going to be gaining weight. They'll be actually maybe even losing some weight. Uh, depending on the situation or confinement, They'll uh, certainly their performance is going to be impacted. Where It's going to impact the transportation of livestock. Certainly won't be much uh, movement of livestock in this cold uh, where the winds are blowing and wind chills are so low. Uh, and it's so it increases feed intake, it hurts performance, hurts per meat production, and, and so we got a bump in the market. You say, well, why are we down today? Because it's a futures market, and the futures market trades future, what anticipated future is going to be. And this is going to be a short-lived event to just a few days' time. And so uh, while well, we got support from it, and yes, we do have the cattle on feed report coming up and the quarterly hogs and pigs report, I guess I'd say yesterday and the last couple of days have been about weather, and today now they're starting to look past that to those reports and say, okay, we still got to trade the data here coming up here on Friday, so let's be careful about not getting too high, and today's maybe more of an adjustment for that. Well, and Arlen, given that it's an adjustment, I, I believe yesterday, I understand in the April, perhaps the June, we set some contract highs, and in a holiday trading week, when volume is low, do the technical readers trust these highs as much or these market signals on the charts as much as they would in a a, a more real trading week, volume-wise? Well, we, do, we have less confidence in them when they're happening, but when you're going back and looking at the history of the chart, they still count in the calculations and, and figuring, depending on which technical indicators uh, you're following. So yes, they do matter. They do change the technicals, and the breakout that we got yesterday was significant. And, and frankly, the cattle on feed report is expected, and the quarterly hogs and pigs report too, both are expected to show declining inventories. The cattle on feed is a result of a contracting breeding herd now for the last couple of years with drought across much of the country and poor margins as cows were sold and heifers were fed and uh, slaughtered. And so we've contracted the breeding herd, and that's expected to bring overall beef production in 2023 down about 8%, 5% in the first quarter, 9% in the last half of the year, averaging out down 8% for the year. And in the quarterly hogs and pigs report is expected to show all hogs down about 1.5% or so. So we are contracting what we're feeding. That's going to tighten the meat supply in 2023. But that's also widely known. That's also widely been priced into the market already. Um, That's one reason that cattle futures have been trending higher for some time now. And they managed to break above some chart resistance yesterday and get a little bit uh, of additional buying based on that as well. Uh, Arlen, from a chart perspective, yesterday also saw, as you mentioned, a big breakout in the hog market. Did that change the technical picture for for those markets at all, or are they all still downward trending? Well, there's still a little bit of a downward bias there, and that's largely due to, yeah, we're contracting the size. We have a little bit of a disease issues that continue to plague us here in the, the furrowing houses as well. 
um, but softened demand. And we've seen some really solid beef demand, and part of that is China, uh, as it's quietly become one of our largest beef export customers. But China is the reason we're seeing soft pork exports, as we've really seen a backing off of demand going to China after they've recovered from the African swine fever. So the pork industry is still struggling with that lost export demand, and that's expected to continue to be a factor as we go through 2023 as well. And with that lost export demand on the pork side to China, Arlen, of course, the Chinese have announced they're rolling back some of their COVID protocols. Does this make you more optimistic for beef exports into China over this next year, or is it just too wild to tell right now? Well, it's a little bit too wild to tell, but the bottom line is I think we're going to have two stories. We've got a short-term story and a long-term story. The short-term story is soft demand because everybody's pulling back in China. Um, Previously, the policy was if there's two or three people in a city of 20 million, we lock down the city of 20 million to find all the cases of COVID and extinguish it. Now the policy in many of these cities are If you have COVID, but your symptoms are relatively mild, we need you to get to work. Uh, We want you to travel. And it's almost, it's really encouraging the spread of the virus very rapidly. That's resulting in a lot of missed work, a lot of shutdown economy. People either are home trying to recover from COVID or helping relatives get over COVID, um, staying home. And it's really shutting down their economy in the short run. But it's moving so fast through that we're anticipating that they'll be bouncing back by by the second quarter. It's a little bit iffy. That's why I said there's a lot of unknown yet, but that's the current thinking is by the second quarter, we could see a total reverse once again. And with the last year being a lot of lockdowns, a lot of people didn't go on vacations, et cetera. They saved their money. So there's a lot of saved money there that they can spend once things do open up, say, in the second quarter. So, And so we anticipate that should be really good for the economy, really good for commodity demand. Among that would be energy demand, but also the meat products as well, and particularly beef, since beef is seen kind of as a higher-end product in China. Certainly it would be. Arlen, let's turn our focus over to the grain markets here. We've got weakness in the soybeans today, off 13, 14 cents here. What's developed in the overnight in beans? Well, the problem with soybeans is that 1490 area basis of January contract, the lead contract, there's significant resistance there that has really held the market for much of the last six months. And with demand to China really declining right now with the Brazilian harvest expected to start probably next week, um, it's really tough to justify pushing above that 1490 level at this point. And so, once again, the market tried this week, was unable to do it, kind of gave its last gasp effort yesterday, perhaps over the holiday break. In some of the thinner trade volume, they may be able to get it up there, but there's not a lot of fundamental support for it. The only thing really arguing for it is perhaps the drought problems in Argentina, but right now it looks like the crop in Brazil is going to be so big that it will offset uh, the losses in Argentina. And so it's really difficult at this point to justify going higher. And fund managers don't make money in a stagnant market. If they can't go higher, they're going to take it lower. 
That makes sense. Volatility makes the money. Let's look at that Brazilian crop. Arlen, you mentioned those early planted beans. Those first ones are about ready to come off. Export expectations. Where do you see it moving from here for American soy into December, the remainder of December, January and February? Yeah, I think we'll probably um, sell a few more cargos to uh, uh, to China, uh, trying to close the gap. They still needed about 10 cargos or so to fill their January shipment needs. Um, basically, by February, we anticipate there will be plenty of soybeans available in Brazil to fill much of it. We may sell a cargo to there, here or there. We were still a little bit competitive for the January shipments, and I think that was part of yesterday's strength as buyers are getting up some of those supplies and getting them booked. Um, but beyond that, it really softens up. And I think we're gonna see our export sales really start to drop off. Today's weekly export sales are really showing a softening of the pace. And we're gonna see the shipments start to soften as we move into the month of January and particularly into the month of February, shipments are really gonna slow. And as we saw with corn and wheat, even though we had pretty decent domestic fundamentals, it's those export sales and shipments that are reported every week that the market looks to for guidance so much. So if you see those export sales and shipments for soybeans back off, you lose those headlines that help support the market. And I think it's going to be increasingly difficult at that point then to support this market unless we can build a bigger story out of Argentina. Yes, that is a great point. And Arlen, you, know, you mentioned domestic demand, very strong on soybeans. We see that crush continue to be exceptional. On corn as well, we've seen domestic demand be very strong. That was driven by ethanol, largely in this last marketing season. How's that ethanol industry faring so far in this marketing year? Yeah, it's doing pretty well. We're pretty much on pace right now to hit USDA's target for the current year as I look at a seasonality of ethanol demand. We're within three to five million bushels of the pace needed to be in to hit the target. Question is where we go from here. A lot of that depends on the economy and on exports of ethanol. And uh, energy prices right now overall are cheap, um, but I see a lot of upside risk to those energy prices once we see China in the second quarter. And if that happens, that should be supportive of biofuel demand once again. So I feel pretty good about sustaining that demand at this point. Arlen, those ethanol exports, do you see them largely headed to Asia over this next year, or what's your best guess? Yeah, ironically, we even send ethanol to Brazil, um, which Brazil ships ethanol up to uh, California, so we kind of trade inventories. Uh, some of it goes to Canada, um, various parts of it to, to uh, Asia, as you indicated. So it's it's uh, getting a particularly when crude oil prices are volatile. I think that'll continue to expand. We'll be watching for it going forward. We'll be keeping up with it with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at Stonex. And Arlen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Merry Christmas to all. Merry Christmas indeed, folks. Stick around. We will have more AOA coming up. We're going to talk about the potential return of the American chestnut. Stay with us for more AOA. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. 
restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks on Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one-third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different cultures and regions. There are twice as many pigs as there are people in Denmark. Did you also know that China is the world's lead pork producer? In 2020, they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat, which equates to almost 91 billion pounds. So the next time you dive into that plate of bacon, know that pork is the world's most consumed meat. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. 
When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. You know, we are in the holiday season. Cold weather is bearing down on a lot of you folks tuning in right now. And a hundred years ago, this time of year and this temperature would have been accompanied by the scents of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Of course, that's been celebrated in Christmas music. But for my lifetime, I don't believe I have ever had a chestnut. The American chestnut tree has been struggling for quite some time, but science might be bringing it back. Joining me now with an update is Eric Carlson. He's a research project assistant with the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project at the State University of New York. And Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Let's talk first about the American Chestnut. Eric, what happened to that tree? Why can we not roast chestnuts over an open fire anymore? Well, the American chestnut used to be really common in the eastern United States throughout the forest, but about 100 years ago, a disease was imported on Japanese chestnuts that absolutely decimated the species. And so for since about the 1950s, the, the American chestnut's been functionally extinct. And it's been functionally extinct. That's incredible to think about. But now, Eric, as we look out to 2023, there's the potential to bring this tree back, albeit in a modified fashion. Can you tell us what you've been working on there at the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project? Yeah, so since the American Chestnut was lost, there's been many attempts to restore it to, to the wild through different techniques like breeding and, and other things. Uh, with not a lot of success, but about 30 years ago, we began developing American chestnuts using modern uh, molecular biology tools, similar to the ones that are used to produce modern crop varieties like BT corn and uh, Roundup Ready soybean. And using that same technology, we've been able to uh, introduce a disease resistance gene into American chestnut that allows it to survive infection from uh, this fungal pathogen known as chestnut blight. Fascinating. So, Eric, where did you find the gene that was able to be inserted into the chestnut? The gene that we use is from wheat. Uh, it's actually found in most grasses and many other plants, too. It's actually a very common plant gene. But what, what it actually does is detoxifies the acid that the fungus uses to attack the tree. So this wheat gene uh, detoxifies oxalic acid and uh, prevents the, the fungus that's infecting the tree from actually killing the tree. Okay, so if I understand it then, Eric, the fungus is still here. We can't get rid of the fungus. It's still going to attack these trees. But with this genetic modification, the attacking substance doesn't hurt the tree. Am I getting the gist of it? Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit different strategy than you would see from like a, a pesticide. So instead of actually killing the fungus, we are detoxifying the acid that the fungus produces to attack the tree. So the fungus can still live on the tree and reproduce on the tree, 
but it's not going to be able to actually kill the tree during the infection process. Okay. All right, Eric. Now, as we look out to the future, when we think of genetic modification, of course, our listeners are very familiar with it in the world of crop production. These uh, these modifications tend to come out in crops that are going to be commercialized. They'll be planted. They'll be harvest. This is different. Can you talk to us about where you see the future of this darling American chestnut tree going? Yeah, this is a little bit different uh, compared to previously approved genetically engineered plants in that it's only for the tree to survive better in the wild. It's not necessarily been optimized for like an agricultural situation. All it's doing is getting uh, put into a position where it can survive like it did before the blight came. And what we want to do is be able to introduce our trees back into the forest so they can begin uh, regenerating naturally as they would have before the blight was here and just go back to doing their job. And that's where things get interesting, right, Eric? Because if you had just produced a hybrid chestnut tree, the American Chinese chestnut, you'd be able to go and put those trees everywhere in the forest. But because it's a GM tree or genetically engineered tree, you've got to get USDA approval. And how has that process gone? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Because we use these molecular biology tools, we're regulated by the three federal regulatory agencies, the EPA, the USDA, and the FDA. And uh, we've been working with them for several years now, going back about 10 years. But about two years ago, we submitted our petition to the USDA for deregulation. And in that petition, it contained many different studies that we've performed on these trees, ranging from just their characterization uh, molecularly with their genetics but also for environmental interaction studies where we took our trees and we tested it against animals and plants and fungus that occur naturally in the American chestnuts ecosystem to make sure there weren't any kinds of off-target effects or or any kind of uh, deleterious um, things happening as a result of introducing our trees. And obviously we didn't find any anything like that and uh, we submitted that to the USDA for them to to uh, look over. It is incredible. The specific actions that you can perform with genetic technology is incredible. Eric, what would have happened to the genetic code if you had just cross-hybridized, linked an American and a Chinese uh, chestnut tree? Would that have solved the problem and would that have caused bigger issues? Well, that's something they actually tried to do for a very long time, and and they're still continuing to attempt to create these advanced generation hybrids. But the the problem with that is the resistance genes in the in the resistant species, like Chinese chestnut, are quantitative. So there's actually many genes involved. It's not as simple as a one or two genes. It's actually genes that are scattered all across the entire. Uh, genetic structure of the plant and that makes it very difficult to breed for because you have to to select for many different genes all at once. And uh, another issue with that is that the American chestnut is able to survive in the forest by growing to be the tallest chestnut species on earth. And so when you begin hybridizing it with other species, you begin reducing its actual stature which makes it more difficult for it to compete in a forest setting. 
Wow. All right, folks, well, stay tuned. Keep an eye out for the American chestnut. It may not be too many years, and we'll be able to enjoy that holiday treat once again. Thanks to Modern Science. We've been talking with Eric Carlson from SUNY ESF. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Have a great day. And folks, tune in tomorrow here on AOA. We're going to talk with Jerry Hagstrom and dig into more of those details from the Omnibus Bill. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison Help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save Poison Help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health? 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.